Welcome to the Sex Cafe podcast. Today we're going to be talking about race, ethnicity, and sex. We have two amazing guests. I will let them introduce themselves, their pronouns, and what is it that they do within the organization they're representing with us today. I'll let you get started. Sure, no problem. Hi, my name is Daniel J. Downer. My pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I am the executive director of the Bros and Convo Initiative, which is a Black queer-led organization here in Central Florida, Orlando. And we focus and center our work around building community among gay and queer individuals of color, educating gay and queer individuals of color, and empowering gay and queer individuals of color. And we do that through uh, various programming and services that we provide, whether that is increasing access to uh, primary health care or specialty health care, whether that's increasing access to emotion and mind wellness resources, or even life skills building and capacity building and community response. We really consider ourselves to kind of be uh, a hub and a sanctuary for gay and queer individuals in the community and kind of a way for them not only to fellowship, but to really find a direction to to different services, particularly in Black, Indigenous uh, communities of color, Uh, A lot of wealth and information is shared uh, via dialogue, the kitchen table, or in passing, kind of like socially. Uh, And so that was kind of like the thought process that we had around like really being able to be there for the community and share those resources in a way that is easy and accessible, but feels very culturally organic. I love the the work that grassroots organizations are doing here in Orlando because as you're saying, it's very interesting. While while we typically see them, see all of you guys doing your, the amazing work that you do, you start with one objective and you grow from there, right? So you start with providing access to healthcare, primary health, but then you expand it. And I can't wait to hear more about the amazing projects that you're doing with the folks at Bros and Combo. And with me today, I also have another special guest from my side of the woods, my little corner at UCF. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yes, hello. Uh, My name is Angela Vergara, and I am a teaching faculty at the University of Central Florida, and I teach in the Department of Sociology. And as a teaching faculty, um, it's teaching introduction classes, but upper-level classes, graduate seminars, so I'm part of everything in sociology. Um, My expertise in terms of research is sex and gender and race and ethnicity, and specifically the intersection of all those things and what does it mean with immigration status and cultural identity and um, even your own identity. Like how do we identify ourselves and, and why does that matter? So that's kind of what I bring to the classroom also. I like to include all these different markers, uh, immigration status, language proficiency, um, the differences between bilingual, multilingual, so all these different cultural social factors, how race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and social class intersect to create either what I call the totem pole of privilege or barriers associated with it. So that's my specialty. But I'm also a psychologist, and I teach psychology at downtown UCF. So that allows me to kind of go back and forth between the two, and I add the mental health effects of this intersection of all these variables. Parentheses, why haven't we collaborated before, <laughs> right? <laughs> we have here represented then some communities uh, 
that work with race and ethnicity in mind. But before we even jump into the amazing work that you're doing at the intersection of sex, can we talk about race and ethnicity? And we often hear that these are identifiers, that these are self-identifiers, and that these are social constructs. What, what should we tell our listeners about these concepts of being identified and being a social construct? Well, as a sociologist, yes, definitely jump in into the race and ethnicity as social constructs and how much more complex they are rather than this very um, distinctive markers. Um, also, we talked about in sociology how race and ethnicity, they're not interchangeable, and that's another confusing part of the social construction of race and ethnicity and, and how it really does depend on, especially with ethnicity, your background and where you come, but how race is a much more distinctive marker that even though we do argue that it's a social construction, um, at the end of the day, your skin color will determine racial categories and will determine, once again, either privileges or barriers and identifiers not only by yourself but by others. So that's when the conversation gets a little bit more complex in terms of race and ethnicity, especially when they, people use those interchangeably. And then when people, especially minority people and people of color, they say like, well, you, you're calling my skin color a social construct, but I could see it. I could touch it. I know what people see in me. So that's when the conversation gets, yes, we understand that, but also these definitions of race are socially constructed and have changed throughout time because there's not specific DNA markers associated with very distinctive racial constructs. So that's where we as sociologists stand in race and ethnicity. That is fascinating. And Daniel, can you speak a little bit about that self-identity piece? That when we when we ask about race and ethnicity, how do we reconcile what you were saying about I can see your skin tone, but you identify in a certain way. So how do we reconcile that in our everyday lives? Yeah, I think the the part around ethnicity is one that I've leaned in really heavily because I know that with ethnicity, it gets a lot deeper than are you typically, uh, when you hear ethnicity, it's are you Hispanic or Latino or are you non-Hispanic, not Latino, right? And then we know that that's a little bit different, right? So you have uh, someone who may racially identify as black, but their ethnicity and their culture speaks to being possibly Afro-Caribbean, right? Or maybe in my case, I identify as Black, but also I have Jamaican and Haitian roots. So I've really dug really deep into that conversation around ethnicity. And I've found that it's allowed individuals to really be able to have the autonomy and the agency to reclaim versus me just saying, okay, like you're in this category and you're in that category. And then I also have learned that that has really helped myself and my staff and my organization in the way that we try to educate and engage community because the way that we may engage someone of African-American ethnicity is going to be a lot different than someone who identifies as a Haitian American. There are a lot of cultural nuances and variables between just those two 
And so we can't necessarily just box all in and say, well, because of your skin tone is black, this is the way that we're going to approach it. So I've really enjoyed being able to lean in and allow individuals to to share with myself and my staff how they identify culturally and ethnicity wise and learn what are the best ways that we can really uh, connect with them in that way. Absolutely. And I, I can totally see how, for example, in in my personal experience as a Hispanic is being Hispanic doesn't mean that we are monolithic, right? It doesn't mean that we all speak, we don't even speak, speak the same version of the language. Putting an Argentine and, and a Mexican together and a Spaniard together at the table, the, the type of Spanish that each of them speaks is completely different and perhaps they would not even, they will try to resort to kind of a standard version of Spanish to understand each other because the colloquialisms are not even similar. And I would even say the lived experiences may be different, though similar. Uh, just taking taking into account, thinking about how there there may be some similarities with individuals that identify as black throughout the nation. There are certain things we we definitely can connect on, but there might be some variances depending on geographically and regionally where you are. So your experience as someone who lives in the Northeast might be a lot different than if you lived in the Southeast or even the Southwest or or the Northwest. And so I think that's also geographically, it's important to recognize that as well, that there are those variables and nuances that, that occur based on where you find community or what you call your community. How does your organization approaches those little nuances in your messaging, for example, for health? Yeah, so I think the biggest the biggest asset that we have had has been to recognize that a lot of the decision-making processes around how we provide programming and services, how we engage, are determined by the communities that we serve. And so we have an amazing community advisory board that advises everything that we do from inception all the way to evaluation. And that covers very small details like the messaging and the imaging on on the graphics. There have been times where they're like, this doesn't necessarily speak to the community that you're wanting it to speak to. So this is how the language needs to be. This is how it needs to look. I think about in particular, uh, we were doing some work around health literacy and our community advisory group was really great in helping us create a curriculum that was very easy for health providers to understand those nuances, right? So like when you walk into the room as a medical provider, you have a short amount of time and you're like, okay, I'm gonna give the patient all of this overload, right? But we really were able to get medical providers to pause and understand, well, maybe this is the first time that they've come into an office to have an appointment and they have no idea how to read their labs. Like I'm saying, these are your labs, but they're not understanding. And so our community advisory group was able to work with providers and say, this is how you explain it 
to the right. This is how you really educate and empower. So I think it's really important to, like you said, to look at those those variances and those nuances and to get the input from those communities, right? Because we're limited sometimes even in our knowledge, even though we're knowledgeable. And it's really important to allow community to to make those decision-making processes and kind of guide the best way to, to engage and mobilize them. Yes, and I want to add about the geographical location is incredibly important because as we were talking and you were talking about identity and this Hispanidad, Latinidad, and, you know, Afro-Caribbean and Black, um, it was interesting to me as an immigrant. I moved to the United States when I was 14 years old, and I knew myself as a Colombian white woman. And it was incredibly surprising to me that not only the racial distinction of white is constantly questioned, but that there was this whole category of Hispanic, Latinx, Latino that uh, I had to ask, like, what is that? What, what, what does that mean? And then not only that, but I'm expected to behave in this very specific ways because you see me as a Latina woman. Therefore, you don't see me as white. But my identity until I was 14 years old and still is at 41 is I'm a white woman from Colombia. So when I started traveling outside the United States and going to Europe and other parts of the world, and as a student also, it was very interesting because that all of a sudden that perception of Latina woman, therefore brown or minority even, it's gone. And it's where are you from, Colombia? And my race is not an issue. And learning the, even learning the concept of white passing because for me, it's like, why am I passing as something that I know I was born with? Like, look at my passport, look at my birth certificate. It says, like, so that was really interesting to me. And understanding those concepts, it really pushed me to identify. And I'm very transparent in my classroom when I walk in and I say, hello, I am Dr. Vergara. I will be your professor for this semester. And I am an immigrant, Hispanic, Latina woman from Colombia white but we'll talk about this brownness and white passing so that transparency automatically allows for people for the community who might be thinking the same thing like why am i who am i these things but also for those like you said those people who don't know and we sometimes are limited by the by our own knowledge, yeah. even though we're knowledgeable. I love that statement. Yeah, no, definitely. And when you were talking about like white passing, I was like, oh, wow, I can kind of like, I definitely have heard stories. And I even think of growing up how I'm from the South, like born and raised in the South, but how my parents were kind of like, this is how you're going to talk. Because if you talk any other way or you have too much twang in your voice, it's going to distinctly give away, you know, who you are culturally. So even think about thinking about that growing up or like having a very ethnic middle name, but being taught as a child to sign it, Daniel, abbreviate the middle name and then your last name, because the my first name and my last name are very racially ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But my middle name is is very ethnic. And so thinking about when I was growing up, how they were like, never put your full name, always sign it with the initial. So then that way, whenever it came to opportunities that would arise, I wouldn't be kind of pushed aside because when they would see my middle name, they would be like, oh, he's black. (laughs) Exactly. And it's the same thing. Yeah, the same thing for me is this distinction. You know, my full name is Angela Maria. Vergara, so very much Hispanic sounding, and then learning to say Angela. 
and like pronounce mm-hmm. Angela. Yeah. So people knew it was me. And then this idea of Americanness and therefore belongingness, it's something that is very interesting that I had to learn as a child. Even I had, you know, write down on demographics in middle school, I remember, even high school and putting white, and I had a professor, a teacher come up to me and said like, why did you do this? You're not white. And I'm like, well, what, my dad, It's what? So it's just th- those conversations. Which resorts back to that idea that it's a self-identity, right? Yeah. In our countries, I'm originally from Panama, and in our countries, being white or being black actually depends on where you fall on the spectrum, right? Yeah. It's a continuous yeah. spectrum. If you're on the darker side, you identify as black, even even though we are probably very mixed. In Panama, we had the history of the Panama Canal, so we had an influx of all people from all over the world. And and I don't think there's a pure race. We don't even ask about race in the census because we don't know how to ask that question. It has been so permanent and so pervasive, actually, that we don't, we don't, we don't want to have that conversation. It's the same thing in Colombia. Yes, because that was another thing that I had to not only learn, which that's why I always say I didn't become a sociologist by accident. There were so many things that you were exposed to. You're like, I need to find a way to explain what's going on because I know who I am, but these factors are coming at me and they're actually either putting barriers or giving me privileges associated with those factors, even though when I don't identify that way. So in Colombia, it's the same thing. It's about, and I'm the darker of my family, so I'm called Morenita, you know, and even though, so that's the identification that we don't have that racial kind of construct in Colombia very much like in, in Panama. So that's interesting. And I'm pretty sure as, as, as you mentioned, those privileges and barriers actually come where, where you fall on the spectrum for the black community as well, yeah, because definitely. we have all shades, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving now forward towards sexuality and the intersection of race, ethnicity and sex. How does, and that's a very broad question to get the conversation started, but how does it play a role in, in, in our sexuality? Ooh, I think that, yeah, that is such a broad question. Um, And I've asked myself this question a lot as it retains to, like, my Blackness and the Black community. Did we acquire, like, was this something naturally, like, sexuality and intimacy? Was it something that was very taboo from the very start? Or was it something that became that way because of European influence and this conservative view around sex and making it very limited and kind of boxing it in in this way? Um, And I still haven't found the answer to that question. But I do see in the present where uh, how religion being so close to the black community has really dictated the way that we view sexuality, the way we view sex, the way we view intimacy. Growing up as a preacher's kid in the South, my view of sex was very, very small. It was one, that it was for procreation, and that two, it was between a man and a woman. That was it. There was no conversation. Who were married. Who were married, yes. Because marriage plays a role there. Yes, there was no conversation around pleasure. There was no conversation around protection, uh, prophylaxis, condoms, birth control, no conversation around sexually transmitted diseases. It was just procreation and a man and a woman that were married. And that was, it was very difficult to navigate conversations about sex and intimacy because I had, 
I had nothing like to fall back on other than that. And we understand the realities maneuvering through life. You're going to have encounters and situations are just going to be thrown at you, right? And so thinking about how better prepared I would have been if I and my parents had explored more that conversation around, okay, like, this is what sex is. Sex isn't something that isn't supposed to be pleasurable. It's supposed to be pleasurable. It's supposed to be enjoyed. And if you're not ready for it right now, that's fine. But these are the tools that you can have in place on the way that you're wanting to have sex, right? And so, yeah, I see religion uh, playing a heavy role within within the Black community around sex and intimacy, which has resulted in a lot of stigma around uh, different forms of sex, around different forms of intimacy and, and who people are attracted to. And so my, my work that I try to do individually and, and through my organization is to dispel some of that stigma, to dispel some of that miseducation that, that, that individuals have, because I recognize that while I was that little boy who didn't know anything about sex, that there are other little boys, girls, individuals, however they want to identify, that were in the same and still are in the same place that I'm in. And if by educating them and empowering them, I can change their outcome, then, you know, that's, that, that's amazing. And even adding what you say about religion in this very distinctive con like context of sexual, no pleasure just between a man and a woman, this very distinctive, the conversation about consent. So in Hispanic Latin, Latino culture, you know, we have this idea, very strict idea. And growing up as a heterosexual cisgender woman, um, we were pretty much also, you know, as a community, we were never taught about sex. I was never taught about sex. I was never taught about anything of those concepts, which is how it works, or the tools to engage in it, or that is pleasurable. But I was never also taught how to say no, mm -hmm. and that it is okay to say no, mm -hmm. even if it is your significant other, or the person who you love, or your husband, or your wife, it is okay to say no. So we have this concept of machismo, and that place a, a part not only in sexuality and, and how to be open about your own sexuality but areas of consent and the intersection with domestic violence within the household so religion definitely is a big part of it you know Colombia is mostly Roman Catholic I grew up Roman Catholic and just this idea of you know Catholic guilt like even thinking about sex they teach you like even if you think about it you know yeah. God is watching and they know so there's no conversation and if you have someone if you're in an abusive relationship or or someone who's pressuring you to have sex whether you're 18 or 50 they don't teach you how to say no, those tools. Yeah. And that plays a part in, you know, in health, sexual health, your own mental health and understanding, um, the way you see sex within the partnership. Because I see um, those conversations, especially when I teach sex and gender, sexuality, sexual health, students come up and they ask these questions that sometimes you're like, I can't believe it's 2022. And we have a 21-year-old asking this question, even regardless of sexuality. So it's very interesting how that interplay continues and how it perpetuates consent, rape culture, domestic violence. You know, it kind of intersects with all these things that individuals tend to see it separately as they're not together. So think sociology and criminologists, like 
we, we look at each other, but we're not really talking. And actually, one of the things and one of my movement that I'm collaborating with other criminologists is about bringing attention to that and that idea of consent in the Hispanic community and the idea that even talking about it and say, break the silence, for example, for a Latina woman is, well, I, everybody knows my husband abuses me, but the Latino culture says you have to stay and, you know, he loves you. It's kind of the version of like when a little boy hits you and they tell you when you're a girl, they tell you it's probably because he likes you, you know, that idea. But we're perpetuating that mentality. So and that religion plays a part. You know, you're married through the eyes of God and as much as through legal documents. And, you know, your job is to be a wife to your husband in every which way. But there's no conversation associated with this sexuality. And that plays a huge part on, on sexual health and mental health. And that is fascinating because I, as I was asking the question myself, how, how would I answer it? And only one word came to mind is like, oh, it's all contextual. It's all culture, right? And definitely all the elements that we have been mentioning is just the culture that surrounds us and that we grow up with and um, sometimes perpetuates those ideas. As you were mentioning, Danielle, you were mentioned talking about stigma. You were talking about um, the ideas of uh, what are we expecting for about sex is just for procreation and it's just between a man and a woman who have to get married and have this life plan together and now resorting a little bit to the Latinidad idea that is greatly driven by Roman Catholic principles, right? So it has to be a man and a woman who will stay together and make it work no matter what. No matter There's what. no failure. No failure no matter what and whatever the husband wants in this you know dichotomy it's your job as a wife so it also perpetuates this as a woman this is how you are less than there's no decision making you cannot be alone because also for me i always found that interesting in terms of sexuality if you're an unmarried woman we need to protect you from sexual predators so we have this idea of purity and virginity, very much based in religion, that we have to protect you. But once you're married, it's your husband's deal, and they could do whatever they want. So there's no more protection. So this also this has huge effect on mental health and health issues, seeking out birth control. It's still very stigmatized, the stigma of being on birth control. Um, as a married woman, um, asking for the husband to wear a condom, testing for any type of STDs, all these things, that stigma come into play, even in this heterosexual, very distinctive definitions of what sex is, is supposed to be in our culture, our culture drives those conversations in which now we're putting all these barriers for sexual health. One of my favorite sex educators, Oliver Nacchio from Philadelphia, he's a high school sex educator. He has this amazing TED talk about negotiation for sex. And I think the tools that he uses in, in that TED talk, he explains that when we use sports analogies, there's always a winner and a loser. And we're aiming for the man to be the one who wins and the woman who wants the one who lose and you score a home run. And all of these like sports analogies actually do not make sense. And he proposes that we we move from those to buying pizza and it's a whole negotiation process and I love it because it's not only great communication skill but it's also this negotiation process that can work for any any relationship right it's just like 
having sex is just like buying pizza. You have to negotiate what you like. You have to know what you dislike. You have to set your boundaries. You have to discuss with your partner uh, if you want to go half and half. So you are satisfied and I am satisfied. Do you want to, you know, sometimes you are willing to, to yield and hey, I'll try something new today. I'm feeling adventurous. Or do we go with the same that we usually order? So I, I love that communication skill because I think culturally that's what that's one of the elements that we lack right those skills of saying standing up for ourselves and saying hey this is what I like but it's so stigmatized that I cannot say it out loud or I'm expected I don't know uh, as a heterosexual woman I'm expected to behave in a certain way because that's what my culture supports right and there's a stigma also of over especially for Latinas that's something that I also had to learn you know kind of like that over sexualization of Latinas in the U.S. So there's also a stigma associated with that because if you are, whether single or married, but sexually active, empowered by your own health and your own body, and you want to say, no, I'm not comfortable with that, or even you want to initiate, or you just want it, like you're feeling adventurous. But as a woman and as a Latina woman, as an immigrant woman, as the way I'm perceived with all these characteristics, all of a sudden, there's that level of like, should I? Is, is he going to perceive me in a certain way? Is he going to think I'm this and that and insert any name that you could call? It's so interesting that you say that because I feel that connection as a black queer individual that there's a stigma around that as well to where it's kind of like, well, as a black queer individual, sexually and intimacy wise, this is where you can this is where you can stay. If you go outside of yes. that box and it's like, ooh, you know, am I being too adventurous? How are they going to perceive me? Perception. You know, you know, perception. Um, uh, you're not supposed to be the initiator. I've, I've kind of have felt like wow. you're, you're not supposed to initiate. You kind of are the one that just like stands back and allows that individual to initiate. So you saying that, I'm like, wow, I can kind of connect. It's fascinating because even even now we're talking about sexuality, but it pops in my head as a Latino man myself, things about perception, just like I have so present in my hand when I have a time, I need to be there at least five minutes early because what would they think? Of Who's the always Latino late, but not to the airport late. though, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Never to the airport, five hours Never. before. <laughs> So, so it's interesting about those perceptions because human sexuality is, is not that different from every other aspect of our lives, right? So culture plays a role in everything that we do and everything that we are. As we do our very best to remove those stigma from human sexuality, we need to understand the role that culture is playing. And as both of you are talking, also think about not only the way I'm being perceived, but like you, I'm the same way. I have to be five minutes early because I don't want to be perceived at this or the other. And But it's also the concept of respect. Are they going to respect yes. me? Yes, and yeah. I, they're going to still respect me if last night I engaged in these behaviors and I was the initiator and yeah. I was the professor and I was the mm -hmm. the one that all of it. But today, are you going to see me the same way? And do you still love me the same yeah, way so with respect? So I would even say means. outside of that, because I've had those feelings as a community leader, right? Like this uh, negotiation with myself of where... I have felt that for community leaders of color, 
we are not allowed to be sex positive because there's this fear that if we unapologetically step into our sex positivity, we will no longer be respected. We will no longer be able to get the invites to those meetings or receive that funding, whereas on the opposite side, our more privileged (laughs) uh, counterparts of a lighter hue are able to kind of like steep into their sex positivity um, and I don't know because I don't identify as a white person I don't know if there's that negotiation in, in their head of oh if I do this will I be respected um, I, I agree with that because yeah. it made me think as a professor you know as a teaching professor at a major university I had had people ask me do you wear your red lipstick to teach as if that's a sign of respect, like you won't respect me because I'm incredibly feminized and I wear very high heels and I wear, you know, very fashionable statements and my lipstick is my my armor and my power. But it, it's interesting when I have that level of um, people perceiving, well, you're a professor at a major university and you're teaching undergraduates. Are you there because they're going to look at you and they're going to think like, oh, should I not respect? And I navigate those things because yeah. it's very interesting how to navigate that sex positivity. Because for me, is I'm, you know, it's femininity for me is my armor, and it's positive and it's sex positivity. But there's sometimes there's that idea of, you know, am I going for an interview or talking to, um, you know, higher upper professor who doesn't know me? Maybe a white male that I need funding from. There's certain play that happens in how yes. I dress, how. Absolutely how I put my makeup on, my jewelry, and, you know, making sure there's no cleavage because, you know, all these different things that it makes me think all these games that we have to play almost with ourselves is for the perception of culture and for the outside social construction of these things. This is how a professional should look like. This is how a professional woman should look like. How dare this Latina professor with a PhD show up with her lipstick and rainbow shoes? I, how are you going to teach me now? How do I respect you? So this ideas of respect also seep into that. Now the problem with that, well, several problems with that, but it's not only, is is the fact that it's it's external to us, but eventually we internalize okay. those yeah, yeah, those perceptions, and we are in constant fear of yes. that rejection. Absolutely. And that comes with race, and that comes with religion, and that comes with every element of I culture, will tell right? you, I before that PhD was next to my name, I was much more aware of how I dress in my professional setting as a professor. And I think there was a liberating process when I'm like, okay, I have a PhD, so you can't question me, you know, whether I'm wearing pink lipstick and rainbow shoes or I'm wearing a business suit, that PhD still speaks for me. It stays with me. So so that's interesting because I did go to that stressful, you know, playing with my own identity. Like, how do I want to be perceived? But I'm reacting to others' beliefs about me, not my own beliefs. And sometimes it was really uncomfortable. And as probably we all have experience here, it just gets really uncomfortable because then you feel like I just didn't do myself correctly. I didn't, I was not true to myself. And the way it changed too is if I represent myself exactly as who I am, unapologetic, sex positive Latina, immigrant from Colombia with all these distinctions, that my students are gonna learn to see it that way. So we break those perceptions. So the next time they have another professor show up with rainbow shoes, they're not gonna be a shock by it. And that's how you break those stigmas and those stereotypes. And as you're saying, it's, it's perhaps that sense of respect that can be given or taken, 
but your PhD cannot be taken away from you. Your executive director role cannot be taken away. So it has that sense of permanence that we can grab onto and move forward, right? How do those external and internal perceptions of fear affect our sexuality, either positively or negatively? And I would love to hear from your work with the community, but also what research brings into the... As a heterosexual cisgender woman, but also growing up Catholic, so sexuality, I live with the privilege of not having to learn about it or question it because there's the default, right? That's the default. I'm a heterosexual woman. I'm married to a male, so there's no questions about it. So I have the privilege. So my research very much lies in that gray area. Because if I'm someone who struggles to be, let's say, sex positive and present myself that way in different settings, but I am the default and I am married to a man and I'm married to a white man from the United States. So there's another distinction there in terms of sexuality and kind of perceptions of I am, who I am and how they see us together. But my research very much lies in the, this intersection of all the sexualities, the spectrum of gender and sexuality, and that effect it has on respectability, on consent, on how you have to negotiate what you were saying before, you know, negotiate how much I want to present of myself, even if it's a private, intimate relationship, there's not negotiation. So that sexuality comes into play for my, my research, my teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm very open, very transparent. I say all the terms, I say all the words. Then I always say, you know, I have this knowledge from the research perspective. You know, I'm a scientist in the sense, you know, I'm a sociologist and psychologist, this is what I know. But I'm also a cisgender heterosexual woman. So as there are things that I'm saying incorrectly, because I only know queer non-binary sexuality from what I only could learn from other people and, you know, books and in my research is let me know. Let's be open about it, at least transparent. That's where it lies. Because if we don't say it, if we don't talk about it, we do not know. And those of us who are the privilege of being heterosexual and being part of the default that we don't have to walk around, like, explaining ourselves and our sexuality because we are perceived as that, I can only imagine what the people that do have to or do engage or you're seen with a man you know same-sex relationship like how does that happen how does that reaction happen and race definitely comes into it because then you add hispanidad latinidad afro-latinos afro-caribbeans you know like all these different distinctions and that conversation about sexuality is completely erased <laughs> like, no. and, and here's the thing business people tend to say that you can only fix or improve what you measure right and and if we're not at the table if we're not having that data in there in research yes. we are defaulting as you're saying to um, heteronormative, heteronormative ideas and even within the heterosexual community we don't understand some variations and some limitations and some internal stigma that is also present yes and we my biggest thing for that that lies in my research and as a professor and my teaching ideals and pedagogy is that i don't know everything and i don't want to continue to perpetuate mm -hmm. this very problematic ideas of sexuality because many people i could very easily just go back and create you know fall back on my own heterosexuality it's like well just just the way it is that's what i know right but no that is not the way it is and that's what i know i don't know what other sexualities or genders or what other experience but we need to figure it out to break this stigma and like i said before the biggest about my research is to break the stigma around health. Because as a medical sociologist, you know, consent, domestic violence, um, STDs, and the idea of how to talk about your sexuality and sexual health, and how to talk about medicine that you need. In mental health, how to seek out 
therapy or what kind of therapy works for you, um, marriage counseling, like all these different things, it intersects directly with race and ethnicity because we wouldn't be having these conversations about domestic violence outreach for Latina women if race and ethnicity didn't intersect. Because within that, there's also, you know, Afro-Latinas, they experience higher violence within the household than any other woman. So there's also a safeness, I call it, of white passing and approximation to whiteness mm -hmm. that creates this separate um, accesses for health for between Afro-Latinas and other white Latinas or white passing Latinas or whatever we call ourselves here. But it does create a barrier and it's associated to domestic violence. It's associated to these ideas of consent and race is the complete intersection in why we cannot help. And and I love how your research translates into that community advocacy and that community outreach. And from that point of view, Danielle is also conducting community outreach. And how do, do all of these elements of culture inform that outreach that you conduct? Yeah, uh, really, that kind of was the, the starting point for us when we started back in 2017. There were an increasing number of new HIV and STI cases among gay, queer, bisexual individuals of color. And we were really wanting to lean in and figure out why um, as a community. But those of us kind of in, I would say, communities of color, we kind of recognized the immediate whys. We're like, okay, well, there's stigma. Uh, there's, you know, gaps in health literacy. Uh, just there are a lot of cultural nuances around how we view intimacy and sex and negotiation and consent. And so our work really started around kind of unearthing all of that mm -hmm. and really being able to take individuals from a place of, okay, like we're, we're bringing all of this up, but then we're also providing healing and repair by educating individuals, connecting them to those resources, and then also learning from them, right? The things about this journey that we're doing really well and the things where it's like, you know, this worked for, you know, like I said, this worked for individuals that identify as African-Americans, but for Haitian Americans, it might be a little bit of a different conversation or the way that we approach that engagement is a little bit is a little bit different and so we've kind of evolved as the community has evolved and have used um, the information that we have we have learned to share like I said with the broader medical community around how more um, how more appropriate their programming and and their services can be and then I also think part of it has also been making sure that we create uh, healing spaces for folks just to be able to speak that mm -hmm. because that's probably the hardest thing I have seen for individuals to do is to say like this is how I feel or this is what I desire or this is what my fear is around around this and so we really try to create sanctuary and protect that um, and then as a community rally around them to be able to support them in whatever way, whatever way it is, because we know, like, it's this. A lot of times we are in silos, and especially as individuals of color, we keep so much in, right? Because of fear of losing respect, fear of rejection, all of these internalized kind of 
feelings um, and thoughts that we have. And so we really try to pr provide a space where uh, where individuals can just be unapologetic and can speak it and break the silence, as you were saying, because that's so, I think that's so important that people know that they're not alone, um, that people can see other individuals that they have similar experiences or identities with that are like, look, I, I was there. Um, this is what I did. Um, I think that's really powerful. And I feel like community is the gateway mm -hmm. for the medical community so they could go talk to their doctors. Now they learn yeah. their tools and for the education, the institution of education, because then they could go talk to and explain their needs and what they need from their university or their college and access the resources. Yeah. Because now they have not only, I have a community where they speak my language, not just the syntax and the grammar but they, they understand what and they taught me how to go explain it so now I have this agency to go to my doctor and say hey I want you to listen to me because these are my symptoms and they yeah. might not be what you think it is or you might perceive me as something especially when race and ethnicity comes into yeah. play into the doctors but now I have the tools yeah. so I think that's the beauty and, associated yeah, with that yeah and I was even going to say on in even on the other end you know thinking of something as simple as like being a black queer individual that enjoys bottoming, being the receptive partner, right? Um, and how medical providers, they will see someone walk in and will just assume, right? Like, okay, we're gonna assume your, your sexual position, right? Without even like digging in deeply and asking or, for example, like I said, I'm a bottom. I may go to my medical provider and be like, oh, I need to be screened like in all of my pink parts. And then a medical provider being like, why? Well, because I'm a bottom who enjoys oral sex, <laughs> right? And so like thinking about how I have the privilege because of the knowledge to walk in there and say that unapologetically, right? But someone who might be afraid because when they get into that space with a medical provider, that medical provider's already assumed like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna screen for. There's been no conversation about what kind of fun do you like to have? What does that look like, right? So that you can really, you know, you can really, what we've tried to tell medical providers is, yes, there are some similarities, but it should be very much personalized to that to that individual. You know, we were, we were seeing for a while, um, especially in Orlando, that there were, uh, there was an increase in like chlamydia and gonorrhea, but it wasn't, in the urethra, it was anally and orally because what was ending up happening was that providers were like, okay, pee in a cup, yeah. right? But these are individuals that are enjoying anal sex, that are enjoying oral sex and completely missed, <laughs> completely missed like that. And that, and yeah, and that was really, um, that was I, I think a very eye-opening conversation with medical providers when we said like, look, folks like to have fun different ways. And also the symptoms are not going to be the same. So if I have chlamydia, or, and I'm, I'm gonna preface, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical okay. provider, um, but if I have chlamydia or gonorrhea in, um, in my anal cavity, 
there probably might not be symptoms that are similar to if it was in my urethra or in my throat, right? It might be somebody might be like, oh, I have a tickle in my throat or I felt like I had a sore throat, right? So I think it's important on the medical provider part as well that we have done a lot of work educating them around not assuming to really lean in with their patients and and get to find out who they are, right? And it's something as simple as just asking like, you know, like let's let's talk about let's talk about like your sexual health. How do you like to have fun? How many do you like to have more than one partner? Like what does that look like? And I think just saying that allows that individual to feel more comfortable. Um, and then also being mindful that when they share with you, respecting that, treasuring that, um, you know, not allowing your lived experience and the prejudices and biases that are associated with that to come out when someone shares. But I think I think that's important as well. And for a woman, it's the same barrier oh, because yeah. there's this assumption, you know, you go to your ABGYN, OBGYN mm-hmm. annual checkup and there's the specific markers that yeah. even the markers that insurance covers. Yeah. So even that negotiation too. Absolutely. And this is a way I'm assuming, and wait, you're married, so you must have one part, you know, all yes. these different assumptions, very much what you were saying. And I was even going to say, we've seen that a lot around uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a, a biomedical intervention that individuals who are HIV negative can take to stay HIV negative, and particularly conversations with cisgender heterosexual women. A lot of them have actually came to our office because they went to their medical provider asked for prep and their medical provider said oh you don't need that you're married that's not for you and it's like what and i will say this i got married last year and the way some things have changed with my relationship with the medical provider question especially getting married much more older you know a 40 year old so by the time i was 35 there was always the question and judgment of you know even if they wanted to ask about sexual partners, you're single, and then like, should I ask? But there's this kind of level like, well, let's figure out sexual partners because you're single, but you're also 35, and this kind of almost concept of motherhood, as in like, let me check your stuff because you're 35 now, and let you, we have to prepare you for motherhood without asking me, do you want to be a mother? Yes, yes, do, yes. do you ever want to be a mother? And then once the marriage part comes into play, and now being 40, you know, the conversation, it's almost like, I don't need to talk about it because you have a husband now. So it must be, you know, consent, consent. It must be this one way, and it must be this, and there's no other questioning. And hey, about being a mother, we're kind of losing the, you know, tick, tick, tick is happening. So let's talk to your husband what he wants. And that was the most interesting thing to me because I was like, well, Mm -hmm. this is me and mine and it's my decision at the end of the day. So that was- There's a brain up here that thinks as well, right? Yeah, so that was really interesting to me in terms of access, you know, sexual health, um, depending on, on who the provider was. Also, and then depending on their race and ethnicity and definitely their gender, there was association with, as a single woman, I experienced certain stigma, like if I asked for birth control or condoms or anything like that, because then there's the respect side. Like, you're asking for condoms, but you're single 35-year-old woman? Like, what are you doing? And if you're asking for birth control, why do you need it? You're not, you're not married. You know, mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. do you need it? And, and it's fascinating, because in this discussion, it just... 
mentally takes me to the very first day of classes when I have uh, my students in front of me. We start by asking them, they're majoring in health sciences, so I ask them why this health is going to be in your diploma, right? And I resort typically to the World Health Organization definition of health is the state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not only the absence of disease or infirmity. I know that as haiku number one for my class. And they have to learn that definition because while we heavily focus on the biology, we heavily focus on these are the mechanisms of disease, this is how they get transmitted, this is what changes in your body, these are the symptoms. We forget the psychological and the social aspects of health. And that's how, for example, we miss the transmission mechanisms of chlamydia. And while we focus on the biology of it, we completely miss those cultural aspects or those variations of human sexuality. And it's very interesting. And culture-wise, it to me is fascinating as well, the movement that we're seeing with representation because it also has an important component in mental health. The fact that we don't see ourselves in media, we don't see ourselves in represented out there in the general everyday life right so that can we talk a little bit to our listeners about that question is out there all the time but why does representation actually matter at least to you personally uh i think like i was saying before it allows individuals to see parts or pieces of themselves in in something um and it provides i think hope in a way for individuals to kind of be like, okay, I'm not alone or the way the way that I view intimacy or sexuality is not taboo. It's not it's not stigmatized. Um, and I think it also helps in being able to break that cycle again around, you know, we talked about how much race and eth- ethnicity influence the way we look at we look at sex and so having that representation on a on a spectrum really helps chip away at that stigma really helps to chip away at that fear really helps to chip away at that insecurity or chip away at really just kind of feeling isolated and alone and not only not only you seeing yourself there but also the rest of the community seeing yourself seeing you know, a representative of your race or a representative of your ethnicity up there in a position of power that is not what you expected, right? Yeah. It's like as as a Latino myself, I, I see myself as, you know, I'm not the I'm not the gardener. I'm here to teach your yeah. your class, right? Do you same. do you have the same, same feeling? Same experience, yeah. That's why um, the first day of class I'm very transparent about all my labels. And I have people, students or people in my life ask me like why, you know, and it's about that. It's about you're about to walk in and you are going to see maybe for the first time you're gonna have a Latina professor maybe it's the first time that you're even seeing someone who's a woman so a woman presenting and wearing my femininity for everyone to see so yes representation does matter and and i see it in the classroom you know when i talk about colombia and all these different things and when i give examples i say i say we or i say me or i'm only talking about hispanic latinos because that's my culture but hey let's talk about your culture and how you bring it into this conversation i have students come up to me at the end of it and i have had students email me and say i have never had such an outspoken latina professor and this is exciting or ask me about career advice 
that maybe they wouldn't have seen themselves represented, especially as an immigrant too, that immigrant part. And I say in my class too, I always say, I'm an 11 year old American. I got naturalized and then I tell the story of how long it took, why I've been in this country for 26 years, but yet I did not become naturalized. And no, it's not undocumented, but this is how it happens. And this is how people are undocumented in this country. So all those things I do have like, oh, I moved from Columbia last year and this is my first you know, semester at UCF. And it's so exciting to meet another person. And yes, I'm going for my biometrics or hey, career advice, like what classes should I take and prepare? So that transparency, that representation matters because all of a sudden, uh, 18 year old immigrant that came here last year did not see themselves just like I was trying to find yourself in these identities that are thrown at you. I'm like spitting it out very loud and proud in front of hundreds of people. They're like, oh, wait, I could use that for my own knowledge and power and I actually can be that. This is cool. And that breaks that stereotype, right? Whatever your expectations were of uh, a black folk who can lead a community organization or a Latinx who can actually teach a class, right? And earn a PhD and, and represent that community as we were saying, gives hope to those who see themselves, but also breaks those stigma and barriers that we have been talking about. As we wrap up, do we have any final thoughts or takeaway messages for our listeners? I think one is to encourage those conversations around uh, sex, sexuality, and intimacy within your own uh, social, professional networks. I think that's really powerful. Um, whether that's at the kitchen table or just sporadic affinity uh, affinity conversations, uh, it really helps break that cycle. It you never know you might be having a conversation with someone for the first time, like you said, who did not feel empowered or comfortable enough to share. So I think having those conversations is really important. I think also us continuing to do the work on ourselves of educating ourselves around like sex and sexuality and intimacy. And maybe there are some prejudice and biases or stigma that we did not know that we, we had that has been kind of navigating the way we look or, or engage. And so really doing the work to, to check ourselves and, and to educate ourselves and not being stingy with it. I think whenever I learn something really, really dope or amazing, I don't hold it in. I share it with someone else and be like, hey, I just read like this amazing book or I just saw, you know, something that really was enlightening. I think, it, you know, you should definitely check it out. So sharing that wealth Absolutely. as well. There's that wealth Absolutely. There's no point in, in knowledge if we don't share it, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, to your point, Daniel, I was I was thinking also that those conversations can be life-changing. Whether it's a friend, whether it's a partner that shares with you this new piece of information or this new resource that can open up a whole new world to you. I also think of parents and having the talk with the kids and how culture plays a role with it. Actually breaking that stigma and having an honest conversation of do's and don'ts, as you were mentioning at the beginning, it's like you wait until marriage, that's okay, but here's a toolkit. If you're not going to wait, if you want to explore pleasure, here's a toolkit of resources. Not not only, you know, typically think of condoms, right? But also how do you say no? 
positively when you're not ready? How do you say yes? And how do you approach that with your sweetheart, right? We've actually had a few parents that have come to our space just to be able to have the talk and have someone there in case they in case they fumble. They've called and be like, you know, I want to have this talk with my with my with my child, but I'm not sure how to do it and I don't want to say the wrong thing. And yeah, they come in and you know Yeah, and we're there. So yeah, I would also say that like if you're unsure of how to have that talk, there are a lot of resources and organizations and institutions that can can support you, support you in being able to do that as well. Yeah, definitely having, I agree with, you know, having the conversation, continue to have the conversations, but to also add, to not wait for the person who represents that barrier to be the speaker, be an ally also, because, and then for those who do not represent, let's say, this room, to listen, openly listen, and not be prepared to, let me prepare to react to what you're saying, but act listen so I think that's one continue to have these conversations and especially about sex and sexuality because it's so taboo it's the 21st century 2022 and even talking about sex you know I was telling my friends I was coming to the sex cafe and then they were like fascinated and obviously it went in many different places <laughs> what type of podcast it was but even that you know that realization that saying oh I'm you know we're taping a podcast tomorrow and it's called sex cafe and it's about sex positivity their minds went everywhere, not where he actually is. So even that, even in those moments, you know, five, six adults getting together and we say sex in the, yeah, sex in the conversation, it becomes like, you know, like that kind of thing. So yes, continue to talk about it and just be open about sex to remove those stigmas. So for those folks out there listening, if they want to stay in touch, for example, with you, Angela, for your research, and they want to become participants in your research and and give you their opinions, or for you, Daniel, in your organization, they will love to reach out and learn more about the amazing resources. How can they do so? They can, um, my website, the UCF Sociology website, my email is there. And when it comes to my office email I'm always because it's my whole life if I don't check it if I'm not paying attention I miss out if I need to be in class or not or what I'm teaching but yeah definitely through my email on the UCF sociology University of Central Florida sociology website my profile is there so please reach out with questions I'm very open very transparent my virtual door is always open so please do reach out with any conversations love it and how can they stay in contact with you Daniel yeah, definitely. So uh, they can go to the Bros and Combo Initiative website, which is brosandcombo.org. We're also on uh, Facebook and Instagram for individuals that like those social media platforms. And then for me directly, uh, my website, which is really easy to remember, danieljdowner.com. Email me. You can learn a little bit more about my work with Bros and Combo outside of that. And yeah would love to virtually meet absolutely Um, we will for sure promote in our podcast as well the resources that bros and combo has for the central florida community so on that note i want to thank both of our speakers i think this was a very positive conversation and i hope our listeners take note of all the amazing resources we have out there in the central florida community and if you have any questions do not hesitate reaching out to the sex cafe and our amazing speaker organizations as well. Thank you.